I am Anuli Akinabu, and you are listening to the Black in Real Life podcast. You're golden, you're so golden. What you got, you're the golden child. I see forever between you and me, forever between us. The influencer marketing industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yes, a big B, and that B stands for billions. But if you're black and want to see some real cash, you won't always get a chance. At least, this is what the conversation has been for years, and what the conversation continues to highlight today as black content creators begin to increasingly demand more from brands, media organizations, and marketers. These content creators want more equity, more compensation, more recognition and overall more respect about the contributions of Black people to not just internet culture, but to popular culture at large. Today's guest, Shamira Ibrahim, argues that the exploitation of Black people and Black creative labor are central to the inner workings of the influencer marketing industry. Shamira is a Brooklyn-based culture writer by way of Harlem, Canada, and East Africa, who explores identity and cultural production as a critic, reporter, feature writer, and essayist. She has had bylines in publications such as the New York Times, The Atlantic, Fox, and Teen Vogue. I was introduced to Shamira's writing through a column that she used to write for Vice's Brawley Vertical called Extremely Online, where she wrote about different aspects of internet culture, including the influencer marketing industry. I find the way that she writes about internet culture to be extremely thoughtful and nuanced. I thought that her perspective as a culture writer who also has had experience working in the technology industry would contribute nicely into the conversations about internet culture generally and influencer marketing more specifically that I want to facilitate this season. Here is how each episode will work. In each episode, I'm going to share a brief introduction to the subject of the day before introducing my guest. At the end of each interview, I will come back to share a few key takeaways that stood out to me from our conversation. These takeaways will be supplemented with research from both academic and non-academic sources to add further context to the subjects that are brought up in the interview portion. For every episode, I will include citations to the reference materials I mentioned, as well as some additional background reading for you on the Black in Real Life website. Visit www.blkirl.com to nerd out. Okay, now without further ado, let's get into my conversation with culture writer Shamira Ibrahim. I'd like to start by talking about the column you did for Vice's Raleigh Vertical. I'm extremely Mm -hmm. online because that's actually my first introduction to your work was that column. So Mm -hmm. I was curious as to how the idea for the column came up. Yeah, so the idea for the column came up uh, a couple of ways, right? Um, I was introduced to Vice through Danny Quateng, who is now um, the cultural director um, at Team Bo. uh, And we wanted to figure out how to create a space that talked about what was going on in digital media and social media and Black culture in a meaningful way and kind of 
right now when people talk about the intersections of tech and culture, right? Which is what everyone's doing now, but we were all doing years ago, right? Um, and the reason why I felt like I could talk about it meaningfully is that my background is actually not only do I write, but I actually have a background in tech myself, right? So I have done project management, I've done IT. So I think some of the, the sticky spaces and what we discuss in culture writing is that we get to talk about, you know, how black people you know break the internet how we break these algorithms or we break trends but we don't get to really dig into how they really screw us over in a meaningful way right and i through my background get to understand the fundamentals of that because i've been working on projects before that work in ai i have worked on projects that deliver some of this work and so i understand actually what the objectives of some of this technology is right um i've been to panels i've delivered presentations around business intelligence and data science, right? So I really wanted to just get people to understand that we are the product, we are what's selling, there's nothing that is free in the internet and you know, there's nothing that is net neutral, right? So there's no such thing as anything that is impartial, it's all built on biases and we are the architects of it. And when we as creatives get to create things that we think is just for the you know, the matter of self-expression, but that gets manipulated to generate profit. And we don't realize that because we're sitting there thinking, well, hopefully somebody sees it, realizes our talent and offers us the bag, right? And we are the bag. Then how do we really get to understand that and realize how this is a long trend of us getting manipulated and exploited and it's just being, you know, repurposed and remixed for the digital age. And that's how we wanted to start to talk about just the space of, internet culture, tech culture, why it bleeds over into other spaces. And so we started in you know, the social space um, with regards to gaming, right? We started with talking about dances and gaming and how you know, the Black 4JD's dance, the Millie Rock, all these artists were out here um, uh, with these video games getting exploited and not getting the money's worth, even though there were some white influencers who were actually becoming brand ambassadors for the game, right? Um, we expanded that talking about just the space of brand influencers and how how that game was rigged and how the algorithms continue to mess up and shift people up and down and how you can get monetized and demonetized in various ways and how the game is constantly cagey and some black beauty influencers feel like they just get pushed out of the industry as celebrities start to wade their way into the industry and they have no real power about how their revenue streams get you know accelerated. And that continues to this day, right? There was a recent story around Glozell about how Glozell was everywhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, and Glozell recently talked about how she went broke, right? She just went for being at the top. Like she was in the White House and talking she to sure Obama, was, yeah. right? And then, you know, she went nowhere. And that's not an uncommon story, right? You can mention that with Antoine Dodson, you know, who had the viral, you know, clip about hide your wife, hide your kids, right? Um, you know, all these stories around how people who become part of internet canon become memes and that becomes fodder for people to profit off of or are, you know, entertainment. And then, you know, just a memory about, oh, what happens to them? We don't care, right? Um, and so just talking about how they can have short-lived lives, but other people can be millionaires for no, what we perceive as no discernible reason, right? It's like, oh, they just sit online and look pretty. 
um, whether or not, you know, you perceive that as labor or not, right? Because having seen what some of them do to create content, I cannot put the amount of work they put on to create a digital space to that level. Because it's, it, it is a lot of work to constantly generate an aesthetic, right? Um, like you can't even go out without documenting everything to a level of effort that I cannot put forth, right? Um, but um, that's how we kind of started to shift and like see how we can engage in these discussions and say, yes, there is an algorithm as to how they see the trends and what is worth engaging, what is more aesthetically pleasing and what is happening and, you know, and they amplify those things, right? And it matters in so many other material ways, right? We were starting to talk about, you know, the column got discontinued because broadly, you know, the vertical um, kind of disbanded, you know, through Vice's um, acquisitions, but um, we started to ex start discussing and expanding into what was happening in the music industry and how they were struggling to pay artists equitably because there's difficulty with independent music artists and finding out who owns the mechanical licenses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you can't know who owns your mechanical license, you can't pay them out equitably, right? And so people like Rod Digga didn't get their royalties for ages, right? Um, and discussing why that happens and why it's a lot easier to stiff someone like Rod Digga than to stiff, you know, like a major pop artist, right, for their money, right? Because Taylor Swift can get online, right, and start a campaign and say, hey, I deserve to be, you know, um, reimbursed for everything that I've done for, um, you know, major record labels, a scooter bra and a stiffing me and let's get everybody on board, right? But how do we talk about how that trickles down in these databases and how there's no real actual condensed space to pay attention to young black artists or even legacy black artists and fight for their space, right? So where do we create a, and now there's actually legislation working towards creating a major database for black artists so that there is accountability and you can say this person has 10% publishing, this person has 5% publishing and you have to pay them out equitably, but that's going to take years to come to fruition, right? So these are the conversations that we were trying to have to say, this is what happens when we try to figure out our digital footprint. Some places is very well documented, some places very sloppy, and there's no real effort to even try to put it together because that requires a level of accountability that they've been getting away with for a very long time. But the reality is, is that technology moves at a pace that is way quicker and iterates way faster than legislation and social conversation, right? So people are innovating faster than we can ever legislate our way to account for it. And so we have this kind of vague, you know, moral code of like social policing and black people will always get the short end of the stick if we just allow for that. And so we have to have the conversations publicly. So that's kind of why we have that column, right? Because if not, who gets to protect the quote unquote culture, if not us? And thank you for that answer, because you touched on a lot of points that I do want us to cover in this conversation, which is a really great, your answer just now is like a really great overview for what's happening mm -hmm. in internet culture. So one of the yeah. things you were talking about was brand influencing. And I do mm -hmm. want to hone into one of the articles you wrote for the mm -hmm. Extremely Online column about the dark reality of being a brand influencer. And in mm -hmm. the article, you were talking about how the brand influencer model was has become inverted with individuals, you know, marketing themselves to brands and PR agencies as products. So based mm -hmm. on your research for that article and just your overall knowledge as a culture writer mm -hmm. and even in the tech industry, um, can you describe what it means to be an influencer? Yeah, I mean, 
it's kind of taking the idea of the cult of personality to, you know, the ultimate extreme, right? And we're seeing it in a variety of ways, even present day, right? You know, OnlyFans in the pandemic has become the ultimate kind of manifestation of the cult of personality, right? It's extended way past the idea of quote unquote sex work or, you know, seeing people share their nudes to a subscription service, right? To say like, it's kind of like, you can account someone's level of clout, right? Are you willing to subscribe to just the mystique of my personality to see, are you willing to see me cook eggs, you know, because you don't know the tier of services you're going to get. Are you just willing to actually engage in my day-to-day life, right? So it's like a separate level of influence for a lot of these celebrities. But in the discussion of, you know, that specific lifestyle, what an influencer is, it really is just cult of personality being packaged and monetized and seeing this is what I'm worth because people will adopt a product off the strength of my word, right? Um, And that is really what it is in like its base level. What it actually really started as was the level of just social influence and clubs, right? And Mm -hmm. so the tastemakers in the club scene are bouncers and bartenders and people who in the music industry are the people who get to talk to a lot of people in the industry, right? So if you go to the clubs in the Lower East Side in New York, or you go to the clubs in the village, right, back in the 90s and the heavy, you know, rock era or whatever, when Nirvana was huge, um, those would be the bartenders who were actively still pushing cigarettes, right? So, you know, the big cigarette companies, the big tobacco companies would try to make deals with bars to have their bartenders push specific brands of cigarettes. This is after they were settling all their lawsuits, right? So cigarettes are kind of actually really in the way out. And so they were trying to still retain their profits and their relevance. Um, so that was how bartenders became influence marketers, right? Now, it's not just like this vague demographic of people, it's individual people and how they can sell themselves. So it's, oh, I am a James Charles, right? I just off the strength of having 3 million followers on YouTube and X million followers on Instagram that generate this many impressions, right? Just by me holding up this random product, people will know it and people will go out of their way to check it, right? And this will convert to clicks, this will convert to sales, and this is the deck that I present. I'm literally selling myself and my influence and my persona, right? Um, and so that's what an influence, an influencer is at this point. It's who I am, my engageability, my likability, and whether or not I am found to be believable to the people who subscribe to it. As that kind of niche has expanded, that sort of um, metric has adjusted over time, right? So customers are savvy, followers are savvy, right? So people will now more so be like, well, we know that you were paid to do this. It doesn't feel as organic anymore, right? So now you have to figure out the balance of, well, we know that there's no product that you're showing that you weren't on a PR list for. So how do we believe that you genuinely like this or you don't like this, right? Um, how do we believe that now you're a legitimate millionaire and you're getting paid in all these brand trips? How, which, which sentiment you're sharing is because you want to maintain a relationship for yourself versus maintain an authentic relationship with us as a consumer. So these are the conversations that now are evolving and they're still trying to manage um, as this niche no longer becomes like this sort of way to disrupt the market and it's like alternative marketing and it is actually now the standard way to cut through the digital space, right? So it's no longer subverting anything and it's becoming 
if you want to run a new campaign for a product, you have to send to these PR lists of a million people, right? Um, so you can't do anything without, let's say, sending Kylie Jenner an unboxing video, right? Like that's the, the standard now. And she's going to charge, let's say, six figures for a post and five Snapchat, you know, or Instagram stories of her unboxing it for your benefit. And so that is no longer something that is necessarily going to take you over the top. So how do you actually take it over the top at this point? How do you think the COVID-19 has impacted the influencer industry? I think it's fascinating, right? Um, because you can see some places still trying to figure out what to do. There are still travel influencers still trying to travel, right? Um, and I've been watching that play out because, I mean, you'll still see people in Cabo, for example, or Tulum, right? Showing pictures of them on vacation. And it's this weird sort of dissonance because okay, you're living this fabulous life in this resorted island and, well, there's workers there for you, right? So you're putting workers in a bad position. We can't travel there, obviously. We have no aspirations to travel there right now. So there's no sort of way for us to feel like this is something aspirational we can go and book right now. So you're being paid a lot of dollars to invest in this resort that no one is actually going to make any reservations for anytime soon. So there's a lot of people spinning their wheels trying to figure out how to maintain relevance and resonance in this time. Um, you know, the idea of hyper-consumption is really sort of confusing a lot of people because there are people who are going to sit in this space of saying, well, you're entitled to joy and leisure, right? Which, of course, right? You know, you can't just sit and sit in misery and anxiety. Um, and I think that is a balance that some people are figuring out. But when your entire brand is focused on not engaging with any of the things that are going on and the nuances of going up, that are going on in present day, not even in your own industry, right? How can you engage with the things that are going on publicly, right? So, you know, in the influencer industry itself, right? Like there are white influencers that don't go out of their way to amplify black influencers, or, you know, there are those that don't go out of their way to discuss if you're a beauty influencer, all right, diversity in shades, or, you know, amplifying black beauty brands, or being on the PR list of smaller brands or independent brands and being able to amplify them. So to go out of their way to even try to grasp the discussion on a greater scale when they're so focused on retaining a capitalist mindset, even just for their own careers, now they're kind of stuck trying to figure out how to retain relevance, right? Because a lot of people's energy is so consumed in trying to figure out how to move forward day to day, right? So that engagement has shifted for many of their fan bases and consumers, right? Some of them do want the distraction and some of them are not invested in the distraction. And so I've seen some people's content try to shift to at the very least acknowledging it and some of their followers say, this is disingenuous, you know, you, we know that you don't care about black lives, so why are you doing this, right? And some people's content has shifted towards just being consumed in drama, right? And so that it's just following, you know, a lot of bickering back and forth because there's not much else to really engage in from a, you know, commodification perspective, right? So if there's not much to do from actually discussing products or selling wares, um, then it becomes, okay, let's do drama. The ugliest part has been the really disturbing copy that gets pitched to a lot of these influencers. So it'll become, I know I need to be able to get away from this pandemic and just go on the road. And I need my Toyota Camry to take me there, right? And it's like, okay, that 
<laughs> There's nothing liberatory about that, right, for us. And the copy is is obviously just canned and provided by a publicist, right? And depending on your level of, you know, cachet as an influencer, you may have the ability to adjust the copy or not, right? So when you see those sorts of things, that's when it starts to really sink in, you know, how much the machine needs to still keep going for certain people, right? Because what in your right mind would convince you that anyone would want to sit there and, you know, say, oh yeah, watching black people dying across the country makes me want to buy a Camry, right? But that's just the brand partnership they have. And that was the best way they thought that they could integrate a campaign <laughs> that applies to the current moment, right? And so these are the sorts of, of flashpoints that you, uh, points that you see kind of playing out that almost make you feel bad for people, not bad enough for me to, you know, sympathize that much because they're still making way more money than I will probably ever see in my life. But, um, you know, in the context of realizing how hamstrung a lot of these people are to a certain lifestyle or a certain business model that they cannot escape from, right? They're committed to selling and pitching products. And when that is happening, all they can do is pivot their model to pitching themselves to pitching more products. And that's a, very, you know, like that's, um, how do I put this? That is just a very disappointing place to be in when we're all watching all this play out day to day. Because we see it play out on a lot of Instagram pages, like influencers in the wild. I don't know if you've seen that page and they, yeah. they put like these type of, like you said, hamstrung um, attempts at trying to be an influencer and living that life, which mm-hmm. I feel like has led to the vilification of the word that I just noticed mm-hmm. even when doing work towards this um, project, that a lot of people who may be influencers by definition do not like that word. You know, they'll right. go by some other title like content creators, storyteller. So just based off of just everything you were sharing now, why do you think the word influencer has become so vilified that it's associated with type of like insensitivity or vapidness that other mm-hmm. words like content creator, storyteller may not be at this moment? Yeah. yeah um, I mean, influencer has kind of become reduced to essentially that of like a salesperson, right? Um, so influencer has almost been reduced to something that is synonymous with, I don't want to say a snake oil salesman, but you know, when certain verticals of wellness and health and beauty started becoming synonymous with certain products that were documented to know not to have any material benefits, but were still being pitched, right? So there were popular verticals or niches of products such as hair vitamins, um, such as, uh, you know, obviously, you know, tummy teas that are well-known, right? Um, Products that don't actually generate any material gains, but feed in on a lot of toxic structures that are, you know, manipulating certain beauty, um, beauty constructs in our communities, uh, especially in our patriarchal structures. Then it started becoming, okay, this is really about generating profit and material gain at the expense of your fan bases. And I do have a certain level of empathy for that just because a lot of these influencers are women and some of them do take the products themselves. And I do think we should really acknowledge those power structures when we discuss it because, mm-hmm. you know, women have their own insecurities and their own toxic traits that they own and they internalize that they may push on to others. But I think that's what it started becoming a level of distaste towards the the you know the word where campaigns were being constructed towards influencers having 
little care towards what products they were pushing towards others as long as they were generating return. And when that started becoming the assumption, that's when people who felt like they were more discerning wanted to move away from accepting that label, right? It's I'm more conscious about what I'm trying to actually adopt and you know, create as a space for my following. I am more intentional about the platform I'm creating and what I'm trying to actually generate in the community. And so I'm a content creator, like you mentioned, or I'm a storyteller, or I'm a change maker. Um, you know, so all of these other terms that are still in a lot of ways similarly vague, right? I'm a creative or whatever. So it's still a similar kind of buzzword, but it's still trying to, you know, imply that you are moving towards forward change, right? Moving towards positive action and generating something more productive as opposed to, you know, doing something that is, you know, kind of pressuring or influencing behavior in a way that now is, has kind of implied either net neutral or sometimes maybe net negative returns for the people who are kind of consuming it constantly, right? Um, you know, influencer, you know, sometimes if you search on Google, it'll be influencer drama, influencer tea, you know? Um, and so all of that can sometimes just start to coalesce and have people assume that you're either going to get a huge bag, which at this point, there are like a few people at the very, very top who have it, right? There's not, there's not much space to become a, a millionaire at this point, right? By the time that you try to enter that game, it's too late. And so it's a lot of people now competing for middling returns. So how do you kind of shift out of that, right? Um, and that's difficult, right? Unless you're really willing to come in through, you know, a different route, which is, let's say, being attached to a celebrity and then pivoting that way, right? That's like the more common route these days to pivot into, quote unquote, influencer lifestyle, right? Or so even celebrities themselves are doing influencer yeah. work too. Exactly, right? So it's like, oh, this person became known because they were friends with the celebrity for so long. Now they're doing work here because they built up a following. And, you know, so it's become this space of just like a, a circling drain or how people perceive that it's a circling drain. And so that's why a lot of others will start to now use different labels, even if the patterns may still be similar about just the, the general nature of the work. You hinted at this, or not hinted, but you said this straight mm -hmm. up, um, the gender aspect of it. That a lot of mm -hmm. influences are women, and there seems to be like mm -hmm. a, a line that you don't mm -hmm. see, at least I haven't observed as many men referring to themselves as influencers, but mm -hmm. they are more likely to be the ones that assume those other titles. But women will take on the title more readily of influencers than a man will do. Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something I've noticed. And there are male influencers right. that do a variety of things, right? Um, especially in the fitness world, there are plenty of male influencers in the fitness world that will sell you all sorts of protein shakes and protein powders and do all sorts of crazy routines and promote things that are unhealthy as well, right? And don't get called out for nearly as much in the way that women are in the fitness world. Like that's one blatant discrepancy that doesn't get talked about as much. Um, and even in the beauty world, right, there are, you know, male influencers in the beauty world that actually get compensated at higher rates a lot of the time than women in the beauty world. But yeah, you're right that they don't get talked about as much and they don't get highlighted as much or denigrated as much um, because it's kind of assumed to be kind of a woman's space, right? Or, uh, you know, a woman's space of kind of just being the um, entertainer, right? Or the personality or it's it's kind of viewed as this hobby of homemaking right or lifestyle blogging and because of that assumption people don't necessarily as associate a men's a man's face to it um, but there are plenty of men who are involved in it I mean 
if you think about it, at the end of the day, it's just marketing. Um, but marketing is viewed overwhelmingly as a woman's space, as an industry, right? And there are plenty of men involved in marketing. Um, I mean, usually when you look at marketing and comms, the way that people view it is that the, like, executive jobs are dominated by men and then like the comms jobs or like the actual engagement and like the, the communication work is done by the woman and that weird bifurcation um, has always been perceived that way but it's not necessarily true there are plenty of men involved in the industry as well uh, and so looking at that in that perspective um, people tend to feel that um, it's a woman's industry when it's just as much of a man's industry. It's just usually used in different terms, right? But you'll definitely see a man with 75 hashtags, right? Just like, like it's the man's equivalent of party promotion, right? And <laughs> most party promoters are what? Men. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just as similar. There are a lot of connections to the club scene. And like you said earlier, that is a, that yeah. is a good example. I do right. want to pivot now to talking a little bit more about your work outside of Brawley and some of the mm -hmm. other publications you've written for, because you've been everywhere. You've been for, I'm just going to name a few, New York Times, mm -hmm. Ebony, Fader, Teen Vogue, BuzzFeed, just, just a few you know, small yeah. publications that Shamira has written for. Just a couple. Yeah. <laughs> what are mm -hmm. some of the themes as a writer and a reader um, that you'd like to see more coverage um, when it comes to internet culture? What's missing from the conversation? I think what's missing from the conversation is Black people. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be short, right? Um, like if I were to keep it in, in a sentence, but really it's that, you know, there's a lot of culture and tech writing happening, right? Um, and now there's a lot of tech reporting that's happening that doesn't necessarily have as many black culture writers um, kind of covering it. And I'm not the only person who's capable of doing it. There are so many other writers that are capable of doing it. But it's really that this space is kind of coalescing on top of each other, right? Um, you know, there are spaces now in academia that are exploring it, that are bleeding now into writing. And so we need to really be able to now parse this out publicly. And it's not just about talking about it with what's happening in TikTok, but moving it through in so many other conversations because it really affects our day-to-day -day lives, right? And when we talk about how this affects our discussions, it affects the products that people are creating, right? So there's this whole space of like AI discussions or like AI computation theory, where they're starting to create a, you know, a discipline called, you know, basically decolonization theory in AI computation or post-colonialization theory in, in, in AI computation. And that, you know, part of discussion is like actual academic discipline because you actually have to think about how you make your formulaic computations and your logical theories and think of it and remove yourself from like classical assumptions that are very colonial in nature and basically race-based in nature, right? And that is a form of discipline that is growing out of discussions that are happening in a public sphere, right? There are um, annual conferences about race and intellectual property, right? That actually that conference happens every year at NYU and it talks about race and IP and how AI affects decisions coming down to bail bonds and actual, you know, deferment from and determinant from Black people going into jail, right? Because if you start and stop the bail bond program, but start to do risk assessment programs, but we have faulty data for algorithms for risk assessment programs, we're not going to be stopping incarceration in any sort of way, shape, or form because the historical data of everybody who's been incarcerated is still all Black people. So the risk assessment is still going to view Black people as risks, right? We're not actually going to be dismantling anything because the culture of America is still built upon 
black people being inherently violent. So talking about how all of these things affect all parts of our society, those are things that need to be kind of teased together and thrown through and have really robust conversations with a lot of nuance and tenacity that have been had. I've seen great writing about it, but I think we need to have in more robust, thorough, long-form manners, right? These are not conversations that I think can be easily had in 1,500 words or less. I've had them, and I'm going to say that a lot of the pieces that people see that are, quote-unquote, my best pieces, my editors and I have worked, and my editors, I love them to death for helping me bring out the best versions of pieces that started out at 3,000 words, (laughs) because you know, trying to cover such difficult topics, you know, you want to explain everything. And it like explaining racism is at the core of everything. <laughs> and then right, tech yeah. on top of it, you know, you end up writing a missive and then bringing it back down. And so really trying to be able to have those robust conversations about technology and surveillance and how this is really going to be playing out in so many parts of popular culture. How are we going to rethink digital engagement now that we're all in quarantine how do we rethink digital interaction or digital monetization you know even with the music industry now that we think about just the idea of getting access to people you know all of that matters in a way that needs to be written about really sensitively because how do you value what somebody is worth digitally right Mm. um you know it's like well i'm sitting on my ass i'm willing to pay ten dollars to watch tanache perform but I'm not going to pay $50 to watch Beyonce for I don't know. I'm just throwing out a number, right? But these are the conversations that we discuss and we should be discussing, right? Um, and having those conversations and even having discussions about data and what data gets sold and surveilled and how we, you know, what compromises we make as we accept it, those, this, the logic behind what we've already forfeited, because we forfeited a lot to the government and you know, in public data, versus what we should be fighting to protect as Black people who have already given so much over to this country, right? Those connections, like, we should be having, making those connections and talking about them. But it's, you know, that's a longer project that requires time and resources. And frankly, we deserve to be given those time and resources to have that dialogue and make that project. And one of the more recent articles you wrote, it speaks just exactly what you were talking about when it comes to the music industry. So I wanted to mm-hmm. see if you can expand on that a bit, but you wrote about female rappers and sexual agency mm-hmm. for Teen Vogue recently. And you were mm-hmm. highlighting women like Flo Millie, Meg- Megan Thee Stallion, and Saweetie. What do you think mm-hmm. these artists can teach us about content creation in a digital age? I think what's been great about what those artists have done recently is, you know, like I said in the piece, it's not a new thing that women rappers have talked about sex and their agency and subverted, you know, being on this sexual pedestal in rap and decided, well, if we're going to use sexual politics as currency in rap, at least I'm going to talk about my pleasure and center myself in it. But what's been really pleasing to see in the last couple of years is that they've done it on their own terms in the sense that they've used social media. They've come up outside of just like the cornerstone of labels, right? Not that labels have not helped them with the promotion and everything like that. But, you know, Meg came on through SoundCloud, right? You know, a lot of people knew her two mixtapes before Fever, right? A lot of these rappers, like Flamily just turned 20, right? Which blows my mind, right? (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, a lot of these young rapper girls are coming up without the requirement of a man's cosign. I think that is a really big deal. Cardi on her own came up on Instagram, right? And I think watching 
how they have subverted the like previously assumed construct of you need to come up with a set. You need to come up with a man's cosign. You need to come up as this is the first lady of this crew. This is the first lady of this label. And oh, by the way, she wants to talk about how she likes to fuck, right? Like just even separating themselves from that and saying, I'm going to talk about this independently and you can choose to engage or not is, you know, monumental in a, in a very specific way because that did not happen for a while, right? That was not a thing. Lil' Kim had to be with Junior Mafia, right? Mm -hmm. Eve was with the Rough Riders, right? Yeah. All of these artists had their own sets. Even Nikki, right? She was with Young Money before that. She was a Gucci. Yeah. Like all of these artists were coming up with people collectively. Needed a man's cosign to be approved, right? When Flo Millie came out, who was cosigning her when you know the project that is getting the claim that it's getting, you know, came out? It was all other women rappers, right? And so. These things are the things that I'm paying attention to in 2020, which is that, yeah, the deconstruction of the patriarchy in hip hop is a way down the road, right? But watching that we can amplify and pay attention to how other women are going out of their way to celebrate each other, no matter how much we claim that, oh, women are catty and there can only be one and they go out of their way to beef with each other. It's, if you actually pay attention to the machinations, they actually do care for each other and they actually do invest in each other's careers and they actually are excited for each other. And that is what is fundamentally interesting and worth investing and in amplifying as people who want to care about and gatekeep whatever culture that we think is worth preserving. And there, you know, there are so many issues to even like write about or think about when it comes to like technology and race. Like we touched on so many, but I mean, we can go deeper into any one of them, but I'm curious <laughs> as like, as a writer, and you're consuming the internet and you're engaged with so many issues, like how do you determine whether or not a trend is striking enough to like dedicate a whole article to it or even pitch an article about it? Yeah, I write a lot of things down um, and then I kind of just sit with them and I see if I need to revisit them. So I usually am never pitching something instantaneously. I'm jotting down so many ideas constantly and I use a lot of like, and this is part of like my, I guess, tech background, but honestly, anybody could use any of these tools. Like I use a lot of work management or project management apps. So if people use like Trello or apps like that, um, I use Notion. Um, it's just a great app for task management. And so I do a lot of just keeping track of things, um, you know, and looking at all my ideas of, you know, you can use your iPhone notes app, honestly, right? But um, that's what I use. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the idea is just having a scratch pad for just saying, you know, these are the things that I have in mind. And then honestly, I usually end up revisiting it ages later. There are some pieces that by the time it came out, like, I honestly had started thinking about it ages ago, like that piece about Megan Thee Stallion and everything. I actually, I started thinking about it and I started working on it with Teen Vogue around the time that Sugar dropped, right? Because if people had remembered, which is why I was actually not necessarily surprised by the backlash, but the intensity of it had like thrown me a little bit for a couple of reasons. One was, it's not even like the worst song we ever heard growing up. Like, so that part I was not like, at all. I, so that part just had kind of blown my mind a little bit, right? But two, you know, in Sugar, like, which is how I even started thinking about it, in that well, mixtape or EP, she had dropped the song called Captain Hook, which was literally about a curved dick. Like, so <laughs> that was where we had started it, right? And that's why we had started the conversation, because that happened and the Savage Remix was, you know, headed for number one. And so it was like, this is, yeah, this is a great year for Black women, just watching everyone celebrate it. Because at the time, it was, that was headed for number one, and then the Say So Remix was, had just gotten number one, right? So it's like, watching all of these matchings just happen and we kept just reshaping the piece and thinking it through and then 
obviously, you know, um, uh, you know, WAP happened. And so that was the trajectory of that piece. So that means that it happened over the course of a couple of months, just to give you a sense of how mm -hmm. some of these pieces can have a life cycle of some time. That's not all the time. Sometimes I turn out a piece in a week, right? But um, I can have an idea, sit on it, and either write it out and abandon it, or sit on the idea, we can start thinking about it, and then like come back to it a couple months later and say, okay, it's worth coming to now, right? So both approaches can happen. Um, sometimes you realize that it's just not the right time to pitch something, or it's not the right time to you know write it, or you know you just revisit it later. So sometimes you just want to pay attention to trends and not necessarily always want to have the first person to have discourse on something. It's not always worth it to be first or worth it to have the first idea. I say a lot of for the people on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, believe me, I always have an immediate opinion or a hot take on something, but I've had to learn sometimes just to hold my tongue um, and just see how things play out. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shamira. I want to now share three key takeaways that stood out to me. For every episode, I will include citations to the reference materials I mentioned, as well as some additional background reading for you on the Black in Real Life website. Visit www.blkirl.com to nerd out. Takeaway number one. The exploitation of Black people and Black creative labor are essential to the inner workings of Internet culture. Internet culture is a reflection of Western culture, and like Western culture, Internet culture has a long history of exploiting Black people. Shamira points out early in our conversation that nothing on the Internet is free because we, as in Internet users, are the products that are being sold on the internet. In his book, Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures, media studies scholar Andre Brock explains how black people have made the internet a black space whose contours have become visible through sociality and distributed digital practice, while also decentering whiteness as the default internet identity. He calls these Black digital practices, Black cyberculture. Brock makes a distinction between Black cyberculture and Black culture online that I think is important to highlight here. He explains that research on Black culture online examines Black arts, literature, multimedia phenomenon, artifacts, and audiences, whereas research on Black cyberculture interrogates an ontological perspective of what blackness means for technology use and, occasionally, design. An understanding of black cyberculture is important in any examination of internet culture. As Shamira notes, there cannot be net neutrality or impartiality on the internet because it's all built on biases and these biases have historically been and continue to be anti-black. Scholars like Lisa Nakamura and Sophia Noble have published pioneering examinations of the racial politics and digital media that pay special attention to issues of algorithmic bias. In her book, Cybertypes, Race, Ethnicity, and Identity on the Internet, cultural studies scholar Lisa Nakamura criticizes the notion that the internet is a raceless utopia, 
and demonstrates how the online world reproduces racial identity constructed offline. Websites with interface design elements like pull-down menus that list people by racial and ethnic identities are an example of this. In her book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, information studies scholar Sophia Noble challenges the dominant narrative that technology is neutral through her term technological redlining, which describes the way that data is used to profile us by upholding the biases of the software engineers and leaders in Silicon Valley who are primarily white and Asian men, but mostly white men. These algorithms developed by these men leads to further oppression and marginalization, both online and offline, for women of color in particular. After all, as Noble explains, Computer language is a language, and language is subjective. Takeaway number two. Influencing is an evolution of the cult of personality. Shamira defines influencers as people whose personalities are packaged and monetized. This is just one of the many descriptions of influencing that we will discuss this season. In our conversation, Shamira describes influencer marketing as an industry that takes the idea of the cult of personality to the ultimate extreme. This stood out to me because the phrase cult of personality gets used in public discourse often. If you do a Google search, you may notice that some of the more recent articles that use the phrase cult of personality use it in reference to controversial public figures like Donald Trump and Elon Musk. It has also been used to condemn the leaders of actual cults like Nexium, the multi-level marketing company slash secret society slash sex cult. Social scientists trace the concept of the cult of personality back to Max Weber's concept of charismatic authority. The concept of charisma has become one of Weber's most notable contributions to social theory. Faber uses the term to characterize self-appointed leaders like politicians that are followed by people in distress who believe the leader to be extraordinarily qualified. Hmm, sounds like someone I'd like to vote out of office. When an individual possesses a charismatic authority, they are perceived to hold a God-given power. Although influencers may arguably serve as representations of new cults of personality, Unlike the charismatic political leaders that Weber studied, any power that influencers as social actors may possess is not necessarily innate or God-given. Instead, to be an influencer means to perform a collection of everyday practices to become labeled an influencer. In other words, influencers are not born, they are created. We'll dive deeper into this point in future episodes. Takeaway number three. 2020 is setting the ground for the deconstruction of the patriarchy in hip-hop. As a culture writer, Shamira has been paying attention to the ways that female rappers like Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion are subverting the music industry's patriarchal assumptions about gender by centering their own pleasure in their lyrics. It used to be that women needed the cosign of a man to make it big as a rapper. Shamira cites Little Kim's association with Junior Mafia and Nicki Minaj's association with Young Money as examples of this trend. 
What stands out to Shamira about this newer class of female rappers is the way that they are using social media to put themselves on without the traditional stepping stones of a male co-signer, even a record label contract in many cases. On top of that, they are countering the tropes of women being catty and competitive in the rap game by celebrating and supporting one another. This part of our conversation got me thinking about hip-hop feminism. Hip-hop feminism is a term that the acclaimed writer Joan Morgan coined in her 1999 book, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. Hip-hop feminists are people who speak out against gender exploitation in hip-hop. While these rappers may not necessarily think of themselves as feminists or refer to themselves as such, as Shimera wrote in a recent article for Teen Vogue, the recentering of erotic power through women going bar for bar with each other or standing out on their own far from eradicates the industry standard hip-hop misogyny that still runs rampant, but that allows for having a choice in your relationship with intimacy in hip-hop and power dynamics that is far more expansive than just the cishet male's perspective. The discussions surrounding the sexual agency of today's female rappers are not too different from what has been said over the years about music video models or video vixens. In a 2005 interview with Vibe Vixen, former video model and entrepreneur Melissa Ford shares, and I quote, I'm not the promiscuous twits I'm often mistaken for. I am a businesswoman who has used videos to launch a multimedia career. My product is me. As Shamira remarks in our conversation, Cardi B essentially used Instagram to launch her own multimedia career. Sisters are still doing it for themselves, whether it is 2005 or 2020. Certain political pundits may fear the sexually liberated women depicted in the shark topping song and colorful video for Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's rock, or admonish it as the exploitation of women. But if you ask me, it would be preferable for these pundits to follow the advice of Twitter user at 843KT and worry about pandemics instead of Cardi and Megan's rocks. You have just listened to a production of the Black in Real Life podcast hosted by Anuli Akinabu, developed by Anuli Akinabu, scripted by Anuli Akinabu, edited by Anuli Akinabu, with research support by Anuli Akinabu. The music was graciously provided by Garth, whose single Wild can be streamed on anywhere you can find music. Thank you, and remember, the people you follow online are also Black in real life.